Well, I encourage you now to open up in the Word of God to the book of Revelation. Revelation is the last book in your Bibles, and we are drawing uh, relatively close to the end of Revelation. Revelation 17 is our text today, Revelation 17, from verse 7 down through verse 18, which is the end of the chapter. Uh, Revelation uh, chapter 17, from verse 7 down through verse uh, 18. It was a couple of weeks ago that we were last in the book of Revelation together. We looked at the first six verses of chapter 17, which begins a new section in the book of Revelation. And this section... Uh, focuses primarily upon the judgment of Babylon, who is considered or who is under the figure of a prostitute, and also of the beast which Babylon rides. And uh, last time together in verses 1 through 6, we saw uh, the identity of Babylon, seeing Babylon. That is, that we are to understand worldliness for what it is, that Babylon represents the values and the lifestyle and the way of this world, a life that is lived apart from the presence of God. And for Christians, worldliness stands as a constant temptation. We need to recognize it and to acknowledge the fact that the ways of this world end in death and resist uh, the evil one is he would seek to seduce us away from God uh, to follow the ways of this world. But now in verses 7 through 18 of Revelation 17, uh, we are going to see Babylon, yes, but also the beast that is closely tied uh, to Babylon. Now we have run into this beast that is out of the sea in a number of places already in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 11, verses 7 and 8, we saw uh, that um, this beast had power to slay the two witnesses who, who symbolized uh, the martyr church. Uh, we read in chapter 12 about the beast's master, that seven-headed dragon who is Satan, who makes war against the church. But then in chapter 13, John again sees this beast making war on the saints, being permitted by God to conquer them for a little while, though not gaining ultimately uh, the victory. And this beast represents worldly power that is arrayed against God and against his people. And that's what we read of more here. So we think of... Uh, Babylon, the worldliness, and also the beast, the power that stands behind it, promoting the ways of this world. In this passage, we are going to see something of the history of this beast. Well, let's now read in God's word, Revelation 17, beginning at verse 7. Uh, but the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw 
was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire for God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled and the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth this ends this reading uh, in God's word, uh, it's a difficult passage, granted. Okay, a lot of symbolism here, things to seek to unpack, but we will do so with the help of God's spirit. Let's seek his face now in prayer. Lord, our God in uh, and heavenly Father, we uh, draw near to you uh, today, acknowledging uh, with true conviction in our hearts that Revelation chapter 17 is the inspired word of God that was written to instruct us that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Lord, there are treasures that are laid up for us in this passage. There is truth that we need to hear today. By your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would grant us clear understanding, move in our hearts and our spirits, O Lord, that we might be led by your truth. O Lord, we come with waiting and listening ears this day to hear your voice, the voice of the living God speaking to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. Perhaps there are some of you here who enjoy... Um, either uh, movies that are kind of epic movies telling grand historical events, you know, big budgets, uh, 
huge story telling one of the great events uh, from history. Or perhaps others of you enjoy books that tell the same thing, those big hardbacks, six, seven hundred, eight hundred uh, pages in length that have a grand and glorious historical story to tell. I enjoy both those kinds of movies and those kinds of books. Well, history tells us not only the facts of the things that once happened, but also help us to interpret or to understand the things which happened in history, how they apply to our lives uh, today. Well, there's a sense in which Revelation chapter 17, well, there's a real sense in which the entire book of Revelation, we might say especially here in Revelation chapter 17, verses 7 through 18, serve as one of those kind of epic historical uh, narratives. It's much shorter than some of those other large books, but the story it tells is no less grand. In fact, it is a story that runs really the whole course of human history. Uh, it's telling us here about the beast, the beast which represents worldly power arrayed against God and his people. It represents the powers of this world, in many cases the powers of civil government, uh, the powers of authority that have existed throughout human history that have often set themselves against the purposes of God. How are we to understand these things? How are we to understand them in our own day? What is their end? Is there any hope for us as God's people amidst these things? This is a section of scripture which tells us about the history of this beast. Well, as we tell this historical tale here, we're going to do it under three different headings. Uh, the first of these is that in verses 8 through 13, we are going to see the beast's persistence. The beast's persistence. Secondly, in verses 15 and 16, and in verse 18, we're going to see the beast's self-destruction. The beast's self-destruction. And then thirdly, and finally, we're going to see this in verse 17 and 14, and also uh, verse uh, 8, actually. Uh, but we're going to see the beast's defeat. The beast's defeat. So the beast's persistence, the beast's self-destruction, and then finally, the beast's uh, defeat. Let's look at each of these things in turn. The first thing that we read here is of the beast's uh, persistence. Uh, we are told in verse 7 that we're going to have open for us the mystery of this woman and of the beast. This creature that's described here with seven heads and ten horns uh, that carry uh, the woman. And then the focus really, for a time at least, zeroes in here on this beast. What is this beast? Well, we're told in verse 8, first of all, that this beast uh, was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And again, at the end of verse 8, we're told uh, once again that it was and is not and it is to come. Well, how are we to understand this? Well, I think what's being described here is for us a beast that has had an existence in the past 
but then goes out of existence for a time or changes form for a period of time and then will arise again yet in uh, the future. The picture is of a persistent beast spanning the history of time and yet a beast that is going through a variety of changes and appearing in a variety of different ways. It goes on to describe uh, some things about this beast in verse 9. It says, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads, the seven heads of this beast, well, what are they? He says that they are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. The woman of worldliness seated on the seven mountains of this beast. These seven mountains, well, what is that? Well, if you were sitting in the first century, you would have heard those words, seven mountains, immediately your first thought would have been Rome. Okay, Rome was very famously built on seven hills. It was a fact that was proudly celebrated in an annual festival called Septimontovan, or seven mountains. I mean, it would have been the same kind of thing had it referred here to the the Big Apple. Well, you would have all known immediately that that refers to New York City. And that's a kind of reference that we have here of uh, seven mountains. And so certainly in John's day, Rome itself was the center of anti-Christian influence. And so Rome is certainly included here in who this beast is in this day. I don't think that Rome exhausts the meaning of this symbol, the word seven uh, the number seven we've seen throughout the book of Revelation is a, is a number which means a completeness or fullness. And so Rome, as it appeared in uh, John's day, uh, would have been that present day manifestation of this great city of mankind that is organized apart from God. Here we have human civilization, human power organized apart uh, from God. Uh, these horns, these heads, excuse me, representing uh, this kind of authority. Well, verse 10, we have a, another description. It says that these seven mountains, well, they also, they are also seven kings. Seven kings, five of whom have fallen, and one is, and the other has not yet come. When he does come, he must remain only uh, a little while. Well, okay, seven mountains we have, but seven kings now. What is this a reference to? Well, there have been a variety of ways this has been understood. Some have uh, tried to coordinate this with various Roman emperors. And so they look at the list of Roman emperors and they try to choose five that were before John's day and then one that was in John's day and then another that was to follow. Well, uh, the difficulty with this is that you have to just be selective in the group of emperors. There were far more than, than seven of them. There were more than five that, uh, that lived before, uh, before John wrote. And so it doesn't seem that this is simply an explicit reference uh, to various Roman emperors. Well, another way that this has been understood is uh, as referring uh, to... Uh, a variety of um, uh, successive kingdoms that have arisen through uh, human history. So these kings are actually various kingdoms. So it's been suggested that the five here represent Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Greece. 
that would have arisen up until the coming of Rome. And in this, it has parallels to the vision which Daniel received, you might recall, uh, in, the book of, in the book of Daniel. And I think this is a possibility. This is what uh, may be going on here. Uh, these five that were, to, that were before, and then Rome is the one that is now. And then you might say, well, what is that one that is yet to come? Well, I think that that could simply refer to the totality of the various anti-Christian forces that were going to arise yet uh, in, in the future. Well, this is a possibility. But another possibility, and I think this is maybe the best way to read this, is that this is, is to take, once again, a kind of symbolic approach, the number seven, uh, referring to uh, a totality or completion. And this is simply referring by these seven kings, it is simply referring to the totality through all of human history, both before and after the coming of Christ, of, again, this kind of anti-Christian civil power that has arisen through history. And the reason it's divided as five and then one and then one is simply to say this has arisen in a variety of ways, but now in the coming of Christ, with the coming of Christ, we have, as it were, entered into that last period of time in which now we are awaiting Christ's return. And so we've had five in the past. We have one now, and there's one yet to come before the Lord Jesus is going to yet appear again. But again, these aren't, it's not saying it's only this number of kingdoms, but it's a symbolic number, okay? And so uh, uh, in, in the past, uh, it has made a, a whole variety of kinds of appearances, whether it's Pharaoh in Egypt or Sennacherib in Assyria or Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon or, or in that period between the Old and New Testaments, Antiochus Epiphanes who, who tried to slaughter the Jews and to wipe them out. Or perhaps it's Herod the Great in the days when uh, Jesus uh, uh, was, was born and the point is, is that all of these variety of kings and kingdoms have perished and they have passed away. And so that is the five that were, and then there is the one that now is. And again, we would say, indeed, that was imperial Rome in the day that John existed. But then it describes again that the other that has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. Well, again, this is just a collective reference to the whole host of worldly anti-Christian governments and regimes which have appeared on the scene of world history after the fall of Rome into our present day and will continue into those days until the Lord Jesus Christ uh, returns. And we could just go on to uh, mention a variety of these uh, things, whether it was in the days of, uh, of the Reformation, those governments of Europe which sought to stamp out the Reformation and persecuted violently the people of God. Or you look at Muslim countries throughout uh, the history of, of the world that have uh, violently opposed those who come to Jesus Christ, putting many to death and casting others out and uh, not permitting them uh, to hold jobs or go to university or anything like that. So it's the forces of Muslim government which persecutes, or communist countries which have sought to promote an, a godless, atheistic state in which 
Uh, the government was the Messiah and the Savior, the supreme uh, power. And the church, again, violently persecuted uh, in so many uh, communist uh, nations. Uh, you could think of Hitler's Third Reich, in which he sought to make religion subservient to German nationalism. And he went forth in a kind of uh, violent a program to dominate other peoples, again, that would have been a beast-like force that we find in our own day. Uh, we certainly see the same thing in various tyrannical rulers who uh, rise up in various nations uh, who are self-serving in their goals and endeavors, reigning at any cost over uh, their people, often abusing and taking advantage of the people that are under them. We see this in our day in uh, governments in the secular uh, West uh, that, uh, uh, that in our day seek to promote a kind of uh, ideology that would uh, uh, eliminate uh, God and the things of Scripture from any kind of uh, public discourse and often promote a form of immorality that is nothing less uh, or that is indeed wicked. And so in all of these forms, uh, this beast has continued uh, to rise up. And Nancy Guthrie says this. She says that throughout history, we've seen a succession of Babylons or Romes, regimes that have attracted the masses, declared their own greatness, rejected any need for God, and oppressed those who are the called and chosen and faithful. So those are the, the seven kings. Well, we move on, and in verse 11, we see that as for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. Well, certainly, what is this eighth that is being referred to here? Well, often the number eight would refer to a kind of resurrection. And so it's here referring to this beast which uh, rises yet again like the kings that have come before. And I think it's really probably a reference here uh, to that final Antichrist that is going to arise, as it were, out of the seeming ashes of the kingdoms of this world and arise and seek uh, to promote a kind of idolatry and draw many after himself in the days just before Jesus uh, returns. We move on to the ten horns, verse 12. Verse 12 goes on to speak of there of ten horns. And it describes these ten horns now as ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together uh, with the beast. That these are of one mind and they hand over their power and their authority to the beast. It's a reference to these ten uh, figures that are powerful and yet, in a way, subservient to the beast. I think it's just referring to those who throughout human history have appeared um, and appeared uh, as a kind of subordinate powers, uh, the mighty ones of this earth in the various realms, whether it be in education or in the arts or in commerce or in industry or in uh, government or in entertainment. Okay, and you think of of these that often promote in service often to a to the state 
advance uh, non-Christian ideologies, whether it's in a nation's universities or the system of commerce that's used, the, the, the things that are promoted, the kind of business that is done, or if it be the uh, again, an entertainment industry, which is often given over uh, to the things of this of this world, or a mass media, which uses its resources to promote a kind of immorality, and that's these ten kings, which are uh, working in this way against uh, the power of of God. Well, what a what a vision this is, huh? Of the beast's history, this grand epic scale. And it's saying that time and again through human history, this is what we have seen at work. And have we not? Is it not true in our day? Is it not true in our day? You know, if you had lived in first century, uh, in the first century Roman world, Rome at that time would have appeared so powerful, so dominant, so authoritative that you would have found it very difficult to envision a day when Rome would fall. But what this prophecy is saying is that the Rome of first century was but one instance of something that had risen and fallen a succession of times throughout human history. And that Rome was going to fall and others were going to rise up in their place, but they were going to fall as well. And it's a reminder that in all of these forces of human power and of human might that set themselves against God, their power might seem very great at any given time, but in the grand scheme of human history, they're going to rise up and they're going to fall and their time is short. Isn't that just such a beautiful description of these ten, uh, of these ten horns <laughs> where it says that, uh, that they're, they are to receive authority as kings for one hour. That's it. Their, their time is short. They're not, their time is short. And, and, and what a good perspective this is for you and for me. Uh, we, we see the persistence of this world's powers. But friends, the things that we face today are no different than things that were faced 500 years ago or 2,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago. This world is opposed to God. But do you know those kingdoms that oppose God, they fall. And then another one rises and that falls. And they don't last. And it rises again, but then that's going to fall. And that pattern is going to continue uh, throughout human history. And that, that reminds us of a couple of things. On the one hand, it, it keeps us uh, from any kind of absolute devotion or allegiance to any particular state or civilization. Friends, the pattern of human history is not the triumph of any particular civilization. That's not what this world is leading to. Every single one of them is going to fall until the only one that remains is the kingdom of God. And so you and I live as citizens in this country. And we have... um, we have responsibilities and duties in the world in which we live. And it's good even to be uh, patriotic and to be thankful to God for the place that you live. But we don't give absolute allegiance to any state. We serve God 
where we are at. And this is just such a helpful reminder because uh, we see that happening time and again throughout human history. I mean, we see it today in a variety of, 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 of nations with grand Im imperial dreams or, or statist uh, philosophies. It's just the idea that, that it's as if the, the purpose is to just make any particular civilization grand and great and dominant in the world that this is where things are at. No, friends. We serve the Lord where we're at, but there's no human state or human civilization that rises to that level. Okay? But as well, if this, if this helps us to remember where our allegiance lies, this is also, this truth also keeps us from despair in the face of worldly might. Dear friends, when it seems that the that as, as a Christian church that we're small and weak and overmatched in the face of the powers that be. Well, friends, can we remember that this too will pass? This too will pass. And we're to be faithful, faithful to the Lord, faithful in service to Him, allegiances to Him, and let's not despair, let's not ever despair in the face of what the world's condition is. And yes, days often are bleak and dark, and it ought to grieve our heart when we see the world rebel. Often people that we love rebelling against the Lord and in this world, yes, it ought to grieve us and cause us to cry out to God, yes, but we never despair in the face of these things. Never despair at all. That's the beast's persistence. Let's move on secondly, quickly now to the beast's self-destruction. The beast's self-destruction. We move on through here. Verse 15, we're going to skip over 14. We'll come back to it. Verse 15, now that the angel says uh, to John, uh, the waters that you saw, remember earlier the prostitute was uh, about the waters. Well, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated, the people and multitudes and nations and languages. It's saying there that this a worldly influence, anti-God ideology, uh, isn't confined to one nation, one location on the face of the globe, but rather it uh, extends outward throughout uh, the, the whole globe. And, and it speaks here of the beast having a kind of love-hate relationship, you could say, with, with the prostitute. All right, there's a sense in which the beast is infatuated with worldliness, seduced by it, given over to it. We, we kind of see that in verse 18, that the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Wow, the kings, as it were, seem to be in the grip, in the control of worldly ideology. Are they not? Okay, so there's a kind of love, a total devotion to worldliness that we find among, among the kings of this world. But I say it's a kind of love-hate relationship because verse 16 tells us there of how these ten horns, these subordinate kings, as it were, the response that they have to this world, it says there that the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast, the beast itself, will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. 
what an interesting phrase. It's not what you'd expect, right? You just think that, well, the kings of this earth, they are they're in love with worldliness. Now suddenly they hate the, the things of, of this world. And why is that? Well, dear friends, I think it's for this reason. It is that idolatry in every form eventually crumbles and falls and doesn't fulfill any of its promises. And people become disappointed when they give themselves over to the idolatries of this world and they become bitter and they become hateful and they become vengeful even towards those things that they once loved. Friends, that's why we see in a world that in one sense is united against the living God, we have a world that can't get along with one another. Where there's constant conflict, constant warfare, constant, constantly people unsettled and angry. It is because there is a kind of self-destructiveness in following after this world. This world is a place of conflict. One political faction opposing another, giving rise to another. Coup, following coup. There are gang wars on city streets. There's family betrayal and breakdown. Even athletic rivals uh, a healthy kind of rivalry in athletics can sometimes lead to people despising one another and hating one another from the heart. In uh, intellectual movements, there are various schools of, uh, of thought uh, that not only seek to advance whatever intellectual endeavor, but begin to despise and hate people of other schools of thought. And, and no matter where we, where, where we turn in this world, there's a kind of, uh, of, of destructiveness that takes place. And as people give themselves over to the world, they find that the world is not a glittering place. And all of its pleasures and allurements that it had promised, they come to nothing at all. The luxury that it promised to give ends in despair. And just like Judas Iscariot, who betrayed the Lord Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, thinking that such silver would make him happy, as he ingratiated himself with the powers that be, Dear friends, even Judas Iscariot came in ultimate despair and hung himself for what he had done. Friends, that same thing is repeated time and again in the world in which we live. Jesus put it this way in Mark chapter 3, in verses 23 through 26. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? Well, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Let me just make some personal application at this point. Maybe it's a similar one to what we made two weeks ago. It's probably a similar one to what we're going to make next week when we see the destruction of Babylon. And it's simply to ask you this, what idolatries are there that consume your own heart? What are the things that you feel that you cannot live without? What are you chasing after? What do you think is going to give you satisfaction in your heart? Is it popularity? Is it success? Is it sports? Is it fashion? Is it good looks? What is it? What is it that you think that you need 
Dear friends, if you are chasing after that as your ultimate goal, it will end in disappointment and failure and in self-destruction. That's the promise of Scripture. That's what it is. Okay, The kings of this earth, they chased after it, but then they began to despise those things which they once chased after because it leads to no ultimate satisfaction. We believe that. The beast's self-destruction. But now thirdly and finally, I want us to see this. The beast's defeat. The beast's defeat. There are wonderful hints that are given uh, through this passage that this power of the beast is not ultimate, but that it's going to come uh, to an end. We see this in a few different passages. Well, there's really three things that, I, that, it, that this passage focuses our mind on, which shows the beast's ultimate defeat. And the first of those three things is it shows us the greatness of God. The greatness of God. Well, you say, where is the greatness of God found in this passage? It's actually found in verse 8, when two different times it speaks there of the beast that was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit. And as you hear that language of it was, but it is not, but it's about to rise, our minds go elsewhere in Uh, the book of Revelation, it's actually to a few different places. I'll turn one of them, and that is to chapter 1 and verse 4, where at the very address to to this letter, John says to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. It's a description of God. The one who is and who was and who is to come. He's not like the kingdoms of this world that go into existence and then out again and another one rises up and then that one falls and there might be yet another. That are, He's not like five kings that all arose and fall and then another and then there's yet another in the future. No, what the book of Revelation uniformly presents us with is a single king who rules not over any mere earthly nation, but who rules from heaven over all of the affairs of men. And he rules and he reigns. He was as far back as your mind possibly can think, and then go back even further than that. And when you've done that, go back even further. And there God still is, reigning from eternity past. And he's reigning today, no matter what happens in the world today. This God is still on his throne, reigning over all the affairs of men. And he is the one who is to come. Not to be destroyed at some future date, but as far forward as your mind can think. And then think back, then think a little further than that. And then keep going in your mind, go on a little bit further than that, and further yet again. And this God is still going to reign. He is the one who was and who is and who is to come in contrast to all of these kingdoms of this earth. Oh, what joy does that bring to the Christian's heart. Our confidence is not in any human ruler. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. 
You know, I mean, just look at the rulers. Look at the people even in authority in the day and age in which we live. They're, they're, they're men and women who are sinners. Men and women who often exhibit foolishness in the decisions that they make. They, they do things which are, are, are stupid. And, and, and friends, I say this not to criticize them because if any one of you were in that spot, I'd be saying the same thing about you. If I was in there, that's what I would be like as well. I'd, I'd do a worse job than all of them put together, I think, okay? It's not that we're, it's just we're saying if our confidence is ultimately in men, if our confidence is ultimately in princes, it's going to fail. But that's not where our confidence lies. It's in the God of heaven and earth, the one who was and is and is to come. That's where our hope ultimately lies. So it's the greatness of God. What's the second thing? The second hint that this passage gives of the defeat of this beast, it is the providence of God. The providence of God. Uh, we see this actually in verse uh, 17 of our passage. There it's speaking about how the, the horns and the beast hate that prostitute. They make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For, verse 17... For God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind and handling, uh, handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. That is, that everything that these civil powers are doing are ultimately in the hand of the Lord. Despite the evil that you see, the wickedness that surrounds us, the human power that is exhibited, every single thing is fulfilling the purpose and plan of God. Every single thing is under the providential hand of the Lord. Our Confession of Faith has a wonderful chapter on providence. Chapter 5, and in paragraph 1 of chapter 5, It says these words, it's on page 922 of your hymnal if you want to follow along. It says there that God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Do you know what a freeing doctrine that doctrine of providence is? Here is, dear friends, a doctrine that frees us on the one hand from anxiety. What's going to happen tomorrow? It's going to happen the week after. What am I going to read tomorrow in the headlines? What am I going to see tomorrow on the news? What might happen next? We begin to wring our hands and we're not sure. And there seems to be an overwhelming amount of information, isn't there, available to us in the world today. And in our world where communication is more instantaneous, suddenly the whole world is at our doorstep and we have opportunity to be anxious about not just the things in our own life, but about everything that's going on everywhere, right? 
Well, friends, for the Christian, we say that everything that is going on everywhere is under the sovereign power and control of Almighty God. And every time that we read the news, maybe we should read Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5, paragraph 1, side by side with it. And remember that everything is under his disposal. Even the kings of the earth are only doing what his will is. And we can trust in that. It frees us from anxiety and it frees us then to serve the Lord. To serve the Lord with the lives that we're given. Because the results are in his hands. He's handling all these big things. Let me just focus on being faithful to him today, where I'm at. That's what he calls me to do. So the providence of God. But the third thing that is a signal of, Christ, of, of the beast's defeat is this. It is the redeeming work of God. Not only the greatness of God, the providence of God, but the redeeming work of God. And we see this in that glorious verse, best verse of, of the bunch, verse 14. Because there it speaks of these ten horns who have allied themselves with the beast. And it says that they will make war on the Lamb. They're fighting against the Lamb, against Christ, against the authority of God. But, it says, and the Lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. I think it's interesting that the imagery of the lamb to describe Christ is used here. The lamb, of course, brings to our mind the sacrifice which Christ offered. He is the lamb of God, as John the Baptist said, which taketh away the sins of the world. The lamb who was sacrificed in my place on Calvary's tree, that my sins might be uh, forgiven. And dear friends, it is through his death and then his triumphant resurrection from the dead that Jesus Christ has already won the victory. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. It means that he is now, even now, rescuing people out of that domain of darkness under Satan's control, serving the one who would do their souls no good, and he, by his death and resurrection, has rescued them from that and brought them into his kingdom where they are kept absolutely secure for time and for eternity. That if Jesus Christ has died for you, then all of your sins are wiped away and they will not be counted against you. And this Lord Jesus will be your Lord now and next week and next year and for time uh, evermore. That's the good news, is that in this world dominated, as it were, by the dragon and by the beast, there is one who is more powerful than them, who has come and he has conquered, and it is none none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And this Lord Jesus Christ is, in the midst of this wicked world, building his kingdom, winning victories. He is sending forth his spirit. He is regenerating the hearts of the elect. He is making people sorrowful for their own sin and leading them to faith in Jesus Christ and bringing them to renounce this world and all of its ways and to offer themselves freely unto the Lord as master and king 
And in the midst of this wicked world, Jesus Christ is building his church. And he's going to continue to build it till the last person that was chosen from eternity and for whom Christ died is finally brought into his kingdom and then he's going to come again. And that's the assurance. And so it means that if you and I have been brought into this kingdom, we are those who are called, that is effectually called. We are those who are chosen, selected, elected by God himself. And we are, by his grace, those who are faithful. Not sinlessly faithful, but by the power and activity of his spirit in in our lives, we are calling him Lord and Master. So what good news this is, friends that in the midst of this world, there is a redeeming work of our God. And this means if you're not a Christian today, your only hope is to come in faith to Jesus Christ, turn to him in faith, believe upon the Savior, and be saved. But, oh, friends, what wonderful news this is for you and for me, because it means that in the midst of this wicked world and all the things that are happening about us and all the non-Christian ideologies and movements and actions and the oppression and the injustice and the persecution that is taking place in this world, amidst it all, in little places like this church and in little churches that are scattered throughout the world like this one, the gospel of good news is being proclaimed and sinners are being saved. You and I need to devote ourselves to that work. This means that in the midst of this wicked world, you go and you raise your children in the ways of the Lord. You go and you seek to be a Christian influence in your place of work, showing forth the light of Jesus Christ. It means that you go into your neighborhoods and into your communities and seek to be a faithful follower of him. The problems of this world are are so big, as it were, you're not going to solve them on your own. Friends, we have a Lord Jesus Christ who has come to redeem sinners. So what should you and I do? Devote ourselves to the things that he has called us to do. Serve him, work for him, and as we do so, we are part of what he is doing in building his kingdom up, winning victory over this beast and over all who would follow him. So devote yourself to these things. And see that these little things that you and I do are things of monumental significance. Not in the eyes of the world, but according to the word of God. Well, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this, your word, for the truth that's contained in Revelation 17. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand these things and to apply them faithfully in the day in which we live. Grant, Lord, that we would be encouraged by the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, in the midst of this evil world, that he, O Lord, has won victory over the strong man Satan, and he has bound him. And, O Lord, that your kingdom will prevail when the kingdoms of this world have come to nothing. O Lord, our God, help us to commit ourselves faithfully to you and to your kingdom in the day and age in which we live. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we're going to sing now. The hymn is uh, How Sweet.